imagine controlling your IBS, also controlling it in a way that you don't have to have this restrictive diet and food fit. You know exactly what's causing the problem and how to avoid it. You know, you're in control. So celebrate any kind of reaction when you're reintroducing because it's going to give you clarity. I founded the BeWell Collective, a not-for-profit organization that aims to bring nutritional education and mental health support to the fashion and creative industries. I believe the topics we discuss throughout our series are relevant to whatever industry that you work in or any issues that you might be facing. Because as a collective, together, we are stronger. At any one time, IBS affects between 10 to 20% of individuals in the UK. You may have endured weeks, months, or even years of anxiety, embarrassment, and crippling stomach symptoms. You could have been led down a path of Google searches which proved baffling in treatments and increased food anxiety. Nutrition plays a huge part in IBS symptoms, but it is only one piece of the puzzle. In today's episode, I am thrilled to speak to consultant gastroenterologist, dietitian, and founder of the Food Treatment Clinic, Kirsten Jackson, also known as the IBS Dietitian on Instagram, who shares her valuable knowledge on how we can tackle and support IBS. I posted questions on my Instagram just before we recorded this podcast with what questions you had and I was bombarded with loads. So thank you to everyone who sent them in. In our 60 minute episode, we tried to cover as many as we could to answer those questions. So I really hope you enjoy this. Now, just before we jump into the episode with Kirsten, I wanted to take a moment to give a huge shout out to our fantastic sponsors, which are perfect for this episode, Biomel. Now, with 70% of our immune system based within our guts and 90% of our serotonin, that's the happy hormone, produced in our guts, it makes sense that we need to be looking after our gut health. Now, if you aren't really into taking tablets like me and you prefer food first, then Biomel's delicious yogurt drinks are your go-to because they're definitely mine. Dairy-free and packed full of live cultures, they're a delicious and nutritious way to support your gut health. And my favorite has to be the Belgian jar chocolate. They've also just recently launched their brand new range called Biomel Complete Gut, which is packed full of 25 billion live cultures and prebiotic fibers, which I like to call fertilizer for your gut. And the prebiotic fibers they use are even suitable if you're following a low FODMAP diet. I use Biomel myself and I have done for years. It's 100% plant-based friendly and I'm thrilled that they are sponsoring this podcast all about IBS. Welcome to Live Well, Be Well. Thanks for coming on. How are you today? No, thank you for having me. No, I'm good um, here in sunny Dubai, so I cannot complain because even though, you know, bad things are happening in the world, at least we have sunshine, so it's good. Yeah, so what took you to Dubai? Would you be able to give us, obviously, you know, you're a specialist dietitian in gastroenterology and, you know, that's why we have you on here to talk about everything about IBS, but what took your career from England over to Dubai? How did you make that transition? 
Um, partly like on a whim and partly for a, a job. It was, it was, I think, all you know when sometimes it's the stars align in your life. Yeah. Um, so my husband had always wanted to move to Dubai and it just happened to be there was a job going at King's College Hospital. So they were opening a hospital up in Dubai. So I was part of the team that helped open that up, uh, you know. So, yeah, quite the experience trying to open a British hospital, but obviously in a Middle Eastern setting. Wow. Um, yeah so it's quite experienced and then I left that in March um, when I gave birth to my baby Esme and then I've just been doing my private work since so yeah very different in the last few years. Wow but busy a busy woman very busy wife mother dietitian owner of clinic feels like you've probably not stopped in the last year. No, probably not good for what we're talk- about to talk about either. But IBS is one of those things. Do what I say, not rather than what I do. <laughs> I think it's so true. I think so many health professionals. I mean, I'm a nutritionist, and sometimes you know, I don't ever normally advocate everything I'm doing because I'm more really sometimes doing the opposite of, you know, maybe not cooking every night and doing all the things that you, we all say: yeah. getting enough sleep, not having enough stress, and all of these factors are. Obviously, huge thing oh, for IBS. Sure. So, like yeah. taking that really nicely into IBS, which is what the podcast is going to be on today. Could you give a short explanation to anyone who's listening who is just thinking, "Well, I don't really know what IBS is, and do I suffer with it?" So, could you give us a short explanation of what IBS is? Yeah. So, IBS is a disorder of the gut-brain access. But what does that actually mean? Because that's very scientifically jargon. Um, so essentially it's a collection of symptoms it's a syndrome so it's not a disease it's a collection of symptoms and those symptoms um, usually are constipation diarrhea stomach pain bloating distension um, and people can have a range of those so you may have just constipation and the, and the distension the bloating or you may have looser stools you know it really varies and sometimes even people might have it for years and it starts off one way and then it goes to another we're not really sure what causes IBS um, however there's various different things linked to the onset so things like food poisoning uh, stress antibiotics um, and you may find that your symptoms get worse with things like um, again stress antibiotics but um, certain foods particularly which we'll probably cover a little bit of in this episode as we go along and um, unfortunately at the minute there is no way to test for IBS so if you do think you have these symptoms it's really important to go to the doctor and make sure you don't have something else because Unfortunately, those symptoms also happen in things like inflammatory bowel disease or celiac disease. So as part of the diagnosis, it you know, you need to go to the doctor and the doctor will just test you for those other conditions just to make sure that this is not the case. Fantastic. And you mentioned there about the gut and brain axes, which I think is really, really, really important because IBS is not just kind of physical symptoms such as bloating and diarrhea and constipation, as you said, it can also really affect people's moods. And I think some people might not be aware that actually IBS can also really affect mm-hmm. you mentally. Could you maybe explain why that why that can affect people and how it can affect things like depression, maybe or anxiety? Yeah, so I'm going to be giving you a very frustrating answer in that we do not know the exact connection. Um, And this is part of the frustration when it comes to IBS management. So we can't say do this and it's going to help with that in in terms of the mental health element. What we know is that people who have IBS have higher levels of depression and anxiety that is definitely linked. Uh, We also know that when we look at the gut bacteria, the gut microbiome in someone who has depression or anxiety, that it's different. Um, And so... It, it, there is obviously a link there, but that exact link, we're not, we're not entirely sure of yet. But there, I mean, some interesting facts, 50% of our dopamine, um, which is a hormone um, influences the mood, is actually produced in the gut. 
90% of serotonin is produced in the gut. So there's obviously a link there, but unfortunately not quite at the stage to say, take this supplement and it's going to help with depression. Or I would love to, I mean, I'd be a millionaire by now if I was able to. <laughs> um, but so we know there's definitely that link, but exactly what it is, we're just not sure yet. So for so many people that are listening and probably thinking, well, maybe I have a couple of these symptoms and maybe I do have IBS. But then a lot of people I know also get really confused. And it's one that I feel like I'm constantly dispelling is the difference between a food allergy and a food intolerance. And so mm-hmm. when people start thinking I might be having bloating or I might be really constipated and they think, do I have an intolerance? Do I have an allergy? Could you give a quick kind of explanation of what is the difference between a food allergy and a food intolerance because they are very different aren't they yes entirely different so an intolerance is basically when you have an intolerance to something what I mean by that is for example you might have an intolerance to wheat which is typically you reacting to the carbohydrate um, and you might find that you have one slice of bread in the day and you're fine but if you have maybe a pizza or a pasta on top of that or you had two slices of bread then you start to have a reaction um, and it does. The thing with the intolerance is it doesn't involve the immune system. This is the key underlying factor. Whereas an allergy always involves the immune system, and an allergy you cannot have any amount of that food. So if you're ever getting confused between the two, just think back to the simple terms of you know when you think of a peanut allergy, would you give that person a little bit of peanut and just see how they get on? No, um, yeah. and that that that's an allergy. Uh, whereas intolerance, you can have little bits and have absolutely no symptoms. Um, and the reason why people are intolerant to food is typically because um, of the way it's digested. So it could be, for instance, a lack of enzymes. So if someone's lactose intolerance, intolerant, then they don't have enough lactase, the enzyme that breaks that down. So they'll manage small amounts, but they, as I said, they won't manage large amounts. Whereas if someone had a milk allergy, then it's their immune system reacting to the milk protein and they can't just have a little bit. Even, you know, a few specks would be enough to cause that immune reaction to set off. So when we think of allergy, the, and the, the example I gave, you know, the anaphylaxis, that's pretty mm-hmm. obvious. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people have, you know, other, other symptoms like eczema can be a symptom, but there is a type of allergy called non-IgE mediated food allergy. And this type of allergy is, again, we're not, we don't have tons and tons of research on it. There is unfortunately no way to diagnose it um, in terms of a test. The only way to test it is um, through an elimination diet. But this type of allergy, it gives you very similar symptoms to IBS, like you might have constipation or diarrhea, but they're very severe. So you wouldn't have just a new stool, you would maybe be running to the toilet 10 times a day, or you'd maybe be projectile vomiting or constipation, you know, for two weeks at a time, really severe symptoms. And although listening to this for some people, you might think, well, surely that person would realise that's not normal. (laughs) Yes, um, but if it, well, yes and no, but if they've had that their entire life, and, you know, they've gone and had these tests done and nothing's come back, then they may think, oh, you know, I probably just have IBS and they're trying to target with fiber changes. And so, it, you know, sometimes it's not that obvious for some people, that type of allergy. And I do see that in clinics sometimes. Um, someone would, you know, they come and they said, oh, I've got IBS. And I said, well, how long have you had it since I was a baby? And, it, you know, the alarm bells start ringing. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's probably not IBS and they've got very severe symptoms. Yeah, and you said there actually the non-IGE, which is a delayed onset of an allergy, so it's normally around 48 hours, isn't it? Yeah, of the well, it, can, symptoms. 
They can be. Um, and then again, we're just really restricted with the evidence we have. So most of the research done in children. Um, and I think there is limited research to show that it can actually happen up to three days after. I mean, normally within 48 hours. Uh, but yeah, and again, that makes it more difficult to diagnose because when you're looking at a food diary, someone might say, you know, I had this food one time and I'm okay. And another time I'm having symptoms and then they have symptoms randomly. And it's because of this delayed onset. So it can get quite confusing for them. And that's why it's so important. It's going to pop in here. I'm probably going to say it about 10 times during this episode as well. Why it's so important to see somebody who is specialized in this area and a dietitian, because yeah. a lot of people, and I, and I see this in clinic a lot, that a lot of people come to you with all of these tests. And as you said, there isn't one gold standard test method. There isn't one evidence-based method that can say this is how, this is a food intolerance. It just doesn't exist. Um, yeah. As a part, unless you're a celiac and you then have, you know, a little tube that's popped down to your throat and then you have a look and you can then see if you have celiac disease or not. But apart from that, yeah. any of these tests you're getting done, and I'm, I'm sure you completely agree as well that they're, they're not evidence-based. And so you then spoke about a food diary and an elimination diary, um, elimination diet, sorry, and a food diary. Um, is that the way that you see your patients in clinic as well, is that you work through food diaries with them? Yeah, absolutely. We need to look through everything. And I'm just going to go back on the testing that you mentioned there. So mm. celiac disease, just to confuse everyone even more, is an entirely different thing <laughs> Different altogether. thing to IBS. Yeah, yeah and it's, it's, not, it's not an intolerance either. It's an autoimmune yeah. condition. So I've got celiac disease. And this is, you know, entirely uh, different. Again, you can't have any gluten at all. And if you do, then it starts an autoimmune process. So again, another category for the listeners to get their heads around. But yeah, um, when people come into clinic, it, when I see people, I actually send them a food and symptom diary before we even have a, have a session. Um, and even, you know, I'm very strict on it. Even if they come to the session, they haven't done it. Then I sort of send them away and say, there's literally no point. I need that information to form part of the actual diagnosis and moving forward because it's critical for me to be able to see the patterns and not just food um, and symptoms, but, you know, their mood, the sleeping patterns, the movement. And um, this all can impact the gut. So if we just have the nutrition, it's only one tiny piece of the puzzle and you're not going to get those re those your answers going forward so if you're looking at an elimination diet so i did a, a podcast i think it was in we're in series five now but in series two um i think it's off my head with dr jane mercer she's the lead dietitian at monash university and they developed um the FODMAP diet, which I'm going to allow you to explain a little bit more, but we won't go into too much detail because there is a whole episode on this. Um, but it comes hand in hand with many people who have IBS to maybe go on a very short term elimination diet, which is connected to the FODMAP. So just really quickly, could you explain what the FODMAP diet is, first of all? Yeah, so the low FODMAP diet is not really a diet, it's a process. So FODMAP stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides and polyols. Don't panic, anyone listening, you do not need to remember that. Essentially what they are is various different carbohydrates found in various different foods, so things like lactose in your cow's milk. Um, and what happens with these FODMAPs is we digest them, with, they go into our tummy like all the rest of the food, then into the tube afterwards, which is just a small bowel, like all the other food, but unlike the other food, it doesn't get digested here, ends up in the large bowel right at the end of your gut, where you've got gut bacteria that start to break these down and give off lots of gas, which can cause bloating and draw in fluid, which can cause loose stools. The FODMAP diet is essentially a low, a diet which is low in these foods for around four to six weeks. So we really give your gut a good break. And then after that time, you reintroduce each type of FODMAP back in 
uh, one at a time to see a how much you sorry a which one is causing the problem but b how much of the food you can manage if you think back to what we said about intolerances what is your tolerance level so it's really not a restrictive diet and mm-hmm. even in the four weeks there's research showing that it actually reduces your levels of good gut bacteria so please do not do it for longer than this there's no benefit at all if anything it's going to do you more damage and that's really important as you said um not allowing it to go on for longer than it needs and make sure that when you are on it you're with a dietitian who can lead you through the process because not only can as you said have actual you know problems with creating your gut bacteria and having it in more limited but also it can create a disordered eating pattern as well because people can come quite fearful of adding in that food so if you've been suffering with IBS for a while and, and you know you've been living in a lot of pain and as you said some people just actually accept it and just think well you know, I'm, this is just how I am. Um, and then they can start this, this elimination diet and maybe they have some good days, maybe they have some bad days and it start can creating a lot of food anxiety, I think within people, um, especially if they're not led with somebody as a specialist like yourself. Um, so what would you give to any advice with people that maybe do have this food anxiety around IBS? You know, what advice would you give these people? So I'll give you the advice I give my clients and I would say, when you look at reintroducing, See it as a positive thing. So if you get a symptom when you're reintroducing, it's not like a flare up. It's not that you're out of control. You're fully in control. And it's a good thing because you're going to get the answers you need. You know, imagine and always think about what's your end goal and write it down on things like post-it notes. What's your end goal? Three months from now, imagine controlling your IBS, also controlling it in a way that you don't have to have this restrictive diet and food fit. You know exactly what's causing the problem and how to avoid it you know, you're in control. So celebrate any kind of reaction when you're reintroducing because it's going to give you clarity. That's so important how you can expand your diet when you're really anxious. I think one of the things that people can get, and again, you mentioned it and it has nothing to do with IBS. You said it's obviously an autoimmune condition, but for years there's always been this fear around wheat and gluten as well. Could you maybe just talk a little bit about that, about people that might have food anxiety? Because obviously there's fructans in wheat, which could have a link, but it could not affect you at all. So it doesn't mean that every single food within that in within the FODMAP diet or, or plan, um, as you said, um, will they won't all automatically react with you. So could you maybe just give a bit of um, a, a bit of an explanation around that, really, about people that might be quite fearful of wheat and gluten? Because I see that a lot. Yes. Yeah, and I get quite a lot of abuse online for this one, actually. <laughs> Do you? Because yeah, it seems to be. And there's people I'm not going to go into because I think it's good to keep this episode really positive. Yeah. But there's quite a few people who, let's just say they're not qualified and they often mm. come up with qualifications that look like they're qualified mm. to give advice. And the two things they always say is dairy causes inflammation, gluten causes inflammation. And especially as a CEAC where I actually have to avoid gluten. I'm like, why are all these people having to do this? Mm. Now, honestly, when we look at the research as you know, there is no research to show outside of celiac disease or a wheat allergy, which by the way, I've not seen in 10 years of my career, it's an actual wheat so allergy. Is yeah. Um, gluten doesn't cause any problems at all. It's a protein. Mm. So even this gluten intolerance is not a thing. So what, when we look at the research that actually suggests, oh, there is a gluten intolerance, unfortunately, there's a big flaw in that research in that they haven't considered the FODMAPs because we also contain fructans, which we know get digested in the large bowel and they give off gas and bloating and they're during water. So when you're getting symptoms with wheat, it is going to be, unless you're celiac or unless you have this very rare allergy, it's going to be from the fructans, which means 
you can have a tolerance to that. So, and you should have a tolerance and you should include it in your diet because it's a prebiotic food. It's good for your gut bacteria. So please, honestly, just, you don't need to be buying all these food from foods so you can get rid of that to start with. And then other foods, just slowly reintroduce them in and just see where your tolerance level lies. I'm so pleased you said about free from foods because if you actually look at the ingredients on the back, it's so much better just to eat good yeah. bread, like freshly made bread. If you don't obviously have, you know, any kind of symptoms towards the frictons. Um, but also saying that, so talking about the emanation and talking about things such as, you know, maybe disordered eating that can come from coming from quite restrictive diets and being quite fearful around adding that food in. Um, can we talk around pre and probiotics because again this feels like another area where yes there's been a lot of research but also the information again is very conflicted and some people know I mean the thing is you can walk into any store here such as a Holland and Barrett and buy a, a, a probiotic off the shelf and, and you think oh this is going to be fantastic for my gut but actually that's not what the evidence always shows especially with IBS so I'd love for you to just talk about first let's talk about probiotics they're two very different things so let's start with probiotics which people might be more familiar with yeah so a probiotic is live bacteria that when you when ingested or take taken in it's going to have a beneficial effect on you so a probiotic is not again this is some of the claims I see online and uh, some food potentially that has good gut bacteria in it because that is literally when you eat it, think about what you're doing. You're putting it into your stomach, which is a ball of acid designed to kill bacteria. So the concept that that bacteria may get anywhere near the large bowel where it's supposed to work, probably not going to happen. Um, so when we're talking probiotics, it's usually the supplement form. Um, so forms in like capsules or little drinks that you may see. Um, that, I mean, there is some benefits to the probiotics, but I think they're, to be honest, overly used. I don't actually use them so much even in IBS, even though there is good research for, mm. for the use of them. I think, again, they're one piece of the puzzle. Um, and often we jump to straight away, oh, we'll just take a probiotic and that will solve all our problems. Mm. It's unlikely to. Mm. And it's important that you get the correct strains, which I think is another really another yeah. a- important area. And that you know, there's millions, billions of different strains. And that's what's really important to understand, which is why, again, I'm going to constantly reiterate this, but going to see a dietitian or somebody who's specialised within that field that can help direct you to the correct ones if needed. I was just just going to say, as an example, to agree with that, even within IBS, which is a very niche um, condition, if you think about all the conditions out there that probiotics may help with, Mm -hmm. there are some um, products that actually show in the research that they help with um, IBS diarrhea type but not constipation type so if you're going in and just getting any random probiotic strain it's probably not going to work it needs to be a very strain specific so that strain needs to be proven to work with that particular conditional symptom. Going on to prebiotics I always like to talk about it as a fertilizer for the gut Um, and I guess that's more of food but would you be able to explain a little bit more to everybody um, what prebiotics is as well how it is different from probiotics? Yeah, so you can get prebiotic supplements um, and these essentially, they're, they're just food for the gut bacteria. Um, so it makes sense. You think, well, how can I improve my gut bacteria? If we feed them more, this will work. Um, so I would say, though, again, get them from your diet. You know, you should be eating 30 different types of fiber in a, a week and um, 30 different sources of fiber, different foods. Um, and that would be more than enough prebiotic anyway. Um, and some of the supplements in higher doses actually do cause more bloating. Um, so I would say just look at your diet and get the different variety. And, and again, save yourself some money and some stress. 
And you know what, you said something really important that I remembered I wanted to say and I completely forgot, but talking about fibre, critical and really important for the gut and we should be getting around 30 grams of fibre, roughly day, give or take, it depends again solely on that individual, um, how much they need. However, with the FODMAP diet, there is again a huge risk that you're not going to be getting enough fibre. So for anybody that's worried around, you know, starting the FODMAP diet or thinking, am I going to get enough fibre? Because fibre can, as you said, cause some bloating or some discomfort. So what would your advice be regarding the fibre content if you're going to start looking and researching down the, the FODMAP route? Yeah, absolutely. And it's a big problem. Often people go, oh, you know, the low FODMAP diet made my symptoms worse, especially if you've got constipation type, you know, you're taking out um, more fiber. It's not good. Um, So what I'd say, and this comes straight from my take control program, I'd say is what I get people to do is, and you guys listeners might not like this, and the people on the program sometimes don't like this, is just hold fire for a week and find out first of all what your normal fiber intake is, and then perhaps look at increasing that first so that you're in a good gut kind of a healthy gut diet first because if you just go straight into the FODMAP diet and you aren't really and your diet's not good not high fiber or or high enough fiber already and then on top of that you're taking out prebiotic food and you're talking out you're taking out a little bit of fluid from your bowel you're going to end up actually really quite constipated so take a week out find out what your baseline is and then you can start to create small goals to increase your fiber intake slowly and you can do it on the low FODMAP diet I think it's always good first of all just to find out where you're at first and then you can create small goals going forward rather than just saying right I'm going to eat 30 grams a day because you're going to end up you know really not in a great place gut wise you can't expect your gut just to be able to do that overnight. 100% and also water intake of how crucial that is to go hand in hand with fiber which I think so many people forget about is is people Mm -hmm. increase their fiber and then there's a lot of discomfort around around fluid if they're not having enough so could you just explain why water intake is so important when you're looking at your fiber yeah so part of how fiber works is by absorbing fluid to you know form the stools and and so if you just increase your fiber intake and your fluid isn't good enough then you're just going to end up with drier harder stools so look, again, look at your fluid intake very, very roughly. It's around 35 mils per kilogram a day. There's various other calculations out there, but that will give you a baseline. But you need to be looking at things like your urine color and it should be like a champagne kind of color. So it's like, and don't do what a lot of my clients do and kind of get to the end of the day and go, oh, the person's going to want my food diary this week and you rush down lots of fluid and then you're up all night peeing. And so it looks every day like your fluid intake is really great. But actually, you can only retain so much fluid at once. So just try and sit, you know, through the day gradually um, and meet your fluid requirements. And not just water, you know, other things count. Tea counts, um, juices count. There's other things there. Soups as well and things yeah. like that. Fantastic. And so going on to certain trigger foods, which might, you know, people might not be aware of. Um, and it hasn't always got to be around all FODMAPs, but things that could irritate IBS. So I'm going to go on to, to an immediate one that I think most people listening are aware of, but it's alcohol and IBS. So, you know, especially in lockdown, it's probably been maybe a go-to a bit more than often than others. Um, what is your take on alcohol and IBS? Because for so many people, you know, there's that immediate thing of, I've had a really stressful day, I'm going to have a glass of wine. But actually, is that counterproductive? Is that going to create more problems and maybe create more stress because it's going to trigger IBS. Is mm-hmm. there a link between alcohol and, and IBS? Yes, absolutely. So alcohol, I think, and I've probably got a 
even more biased for you because I have worked on like a liver unit before. So, um, you know, I've seen the, the sort of the, the nasty side of alcohol. Mm. And, and I think what people forget is, and most people listen, I say, I say most people listen to this, you wouldn't go home and have a line of cocaine. But <laughs> yeah, you see what I mean? No one 100%. thinks of alcohol as a drug, but it is. And it's become a social norm. And, uh, you know, when I first started my career, um, you know, you think about liver disease and you think about someone who's maybe like an, you know, alcohol dependent or and you you, you consider that person's maybe, I don't know, you have stereotypes. And I don't want to go into it because it's not it's not right. However, what we're starting to see is actually people who get, you know, not just not IBS, but even worse, health condition, liver disease. And all they're doing is drinking wine at home and they think, you know, but it's nice and it's expensive and it's this kind of middle class, socially acceptable thing to do. And it, it is very social and it, you don't think of it as like a down and out thing to do um but alcohol it is you know when we look at the macronutrients it's the only macronutrient your body cannot process in any kind of you know normal way, i say normal way but any kind of positive way mm-hmm. so alcohol we know that the actual the drug effect of it is a pharmaceutical has a pharmaceutical impact and it can slow down parts of the gut it can speed up so whether you have constipation or loose stools it's going to impact those negatively anyway but then outside of that we look at sleep. So we know alcohol is a sedative. So you, as you said, it helps relax you, mm-hmm. but actually it disrupts your circadian rhythm. So you may find at night when you come back from a stressful day or, or stressful day of Zoom calls, as it might be at the <laughs> minute, a glass of wine, you feel relaxed, you feel you know sedated, <laughs> relaxed. Um, but the actual sleeping pattern is going to be very much disrupted by the alcohol. So we know that circadian rhythm and IBS has got a big you know, um, connection between it. The other thing is dehydration. So it actually blocks your antidiuretic hormone, which means in normal terms, you know, did everyone, everyone listen to, you know, when you break the seal and you, you just you go to the toilet a lot more. So you can end up really dehydrated and dehydration is going like, to end up with more constipation, hard stores. Then you've got the mental health impact. So we know that, you know, it's a sedative. It, it is very much linked to depression. Depression is linked to IBS. So it's, it can seem very innocent. But I'd really, really encourage people to, yes, I get it. Your stress, this is a really hard time. Trust me, I had a baby in a pandemic. I, I get it. Mm. But we need to think of alternative ways to help relax us. Yeah, and that's 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 key. And as, as well as all of the other things that you just said around, you know, it affecting your sleep, it affecting your stress levels, it might temporarily feel like you are relaxing. But in the long term, actually, the longer effects you're yeah. not, you know, as well, some of these alcoholic drinks are also high FODMAP as well. So you spoke about yeah. all of the other symptoms, but actually some people might not even be aware that they could even be triggers. And mm-hmm. what kind of alcoholic drinks are the main um, the main high FODMAPs? Yeah, so the main ones um, are things like rum. And then in terms of the actual wine, some of the sweeter wines would be, would be high FODMAPs. And then the other ones tend to be typically low FODMAP. However, it depends on how much you're having. Because with FODMAPs, there is, and again, this goes back to, remember, we're talking intolerances. There's a certain amount you can have, and then they become higher FODMAP in higher volumes. Um, and typically, you know, people are starting to have not just one glass of wine, but two or three, and that's where it becomes an issue. And then it's the mixes. People don't really think about the mixes. So even a lot of the sugar-free uh, mixes you might have with your gin will contain things like fructose syrup, um, and that could be a trigger. And Again, it's, it's quite a lot. People go from maybe a gin and tonic thinking this is a long drink, this is the better option, but actually they're drinking quite a lot of fructose potentially in that or some of the fruit juices you might mix with it. So, yes, there's quite a few elements there that could be a trigger. 
keeping on the on the subject of drinks caffeine mm. now i think many people know hand and how they have a coffee in the morning it can start stimulating your bowel some people automatically are like i need to go have to go to the bathroom so what is the link with caffeine and ibs um how does it affect our guts yeah, so the opposite to alcohol in that caffeine is, is a drug still, but it's a stimulant drug. So, you know, if you feel that it increases your heart rate, um, it increases um, things like blood pressure, things like this. Um, so it can stimulate the nervous system. It can stimulate you to go to the toilet. Now, this isn't always a bad thing. So for some of my clients who are more IBSC, constipation, we are saying, you know what, a cup of coffee in the morning not, might not be a bad thing. <laughs> and they're thinking, so, yes. <laughs> exactly yeah exactly and again it goes back to you cannot say do this one this is one diet for everybody we have to tailor these elements and caffeine's mm-hmm. not very not bad for you you know it's good for things like depression it can lift your mood and um, i think there's been some research kind of connecting um coffee intake with longer term with reducing risk of dementia things like this and caffeine again i think we demonize it very quickly but it has to be used correctly so I wouldn't recommend anyone drinking more than the 400 milligrams a day because that's you know um, in terms of that's just healthy and guidelines mm-hmm. um, and I would say just be careful of not having anything after midday because caffeine has a really long, long half-life so even if you're a constipation type and you're thinking great I'm going to drink coffee all day if you're up all night then this is going to have a negative impact so you need to balance and the last thing around mental health is yes caffeine might be good if you know for people who've got depression not I don't, I don't mean drinking tons just a couple of cups mm-hmm. however if you've got more anxiety this could worsen it so I think you know just look at your own caffeine intake and again it's about tailoring it to your specific situation this is a question I get asked a lot actually it's one that came up so I did a I did a few kind of question boxes on my Instagram and so many women wanted to know about female hormones and IBS I think it's a really big thing a lot of people seem to have flare-ups during their menstrual cycles why is it because generally women suffer with IBS more than men um Mm -hmm. not quite sure why that is um but I'm guessing there's a link there with female hormones and and IBS and why can it be worse around the menstrual cycle yeah I mean we're not sure why more women do there's obviously the hormone element because we have babies we have periods we have menopause like it's just ongoing isn't it (laughs) Um, (laughs) yeah exactly it's not fair sometimes but there is also other stats out there to maybe explain this so we know for instance men have a 32 percent less tendency um, to actually consult their doctor in general so it may actually well be there's a lot of men out there of IBS and they just don't get diagnosed. So it could be that. But going back to particularly, you know, um, hormone cycles of women, when we look at the um, the different hormones, it's, it's the luteal phase which is causing this. So this is the phase right before you would have your period. And this is where your hormones are at their lowest level and your gut becomes much more sensitive. So this actually happens in everybody. But if you've already got IBS, it's just like another whammy on top of this. So you may notice during this week that you have more pain around that area. Um, and, you know, this is this is a very is normal for some people, I would say. But as I said, in IBS, you've already got sensitivity. So it's just going to worsen it. And then actually during your period, um, a lot of people will um, say they have worsen symptoms but typically what we start to see is actually the behavior changes so we're not as active as what we were before we're not sleeping as well our mood isn't as good this we're eating potentially different foods um for instance we know that people eat more kind of carbohydrate meal uh, based meals larger portions so potentially more FODMAPs there so I would say to anyone you can't change your hormones 
unfortunately, but what we can change is our behavior. So if you're someone that used to go to the gym during this time, that might not be on the cards, but you could potentially just get down on a yoga mat and do some stretches, you know, just Mm -hmm. keeping active, that kind of thing. A hundred percent. I think that's a huge thing actually. And I mean, being with myself, I can speak, speak about it from a personal point of view, but you do crave more sugar or I do before, um, before the time of the month. And obviously that can interact as quite a few triggers with, with IBS as well. You know, how do you, what advice do you give to, to your patients, um, or anyone listening, you know, if they're like, I'm just really craving it. And I know it's, and you know, it's going to make you worse, but you still do it. (laughs) What would you say during that period, during that time to say when you are having those strong cravings, if it is going to cause you a lot of discomfort, what would you, what advice would you give? What are the other go-tos people could reach for? Go to. So I think, I mean, and this is probably not just during this time, you know, if you're doing a low FODMAP diet, Mm -hmm. then or something, then that's four weeks is a long time, you know, there's Mm going to be more cravings than just, you know, during your period, I would say have lots of easy go to snacks that are in the cupboard. Um, and it really depends on what you're um, what you're into as such. So things like typically I'll go for the chocolate because that's I don't want to be stereotypical, but I know that's probably my go to. So things too. like chocolate, you could do the dark chocolate instead of milk chocolate, which is low FODMAP, and we're not going to cause issue. You could do things like um, some nuts, which are going to actually keep you fuller for longer. Mm-hmm. So you know you're not going to have some sugary food, which is great initially. And then later on down the line, it's an issue. You could get in some wheat-free products. And again, I'm not going back on what I said before. It's not the actual gluten, but it's, it was, will contain less fructans, which are FODMAPs, and this could be a better issue, better, better sorry, solution. Um, and then I would probably look at your actual main meals as well and make sure you've got enough protein in them, because if you don't have enough protein, then you can become really hungry between meals. And this is where you're not going to make the best choices. Nobody chooses things like, salads and fruits when they're really hungry no one goes oh, i'm dying for a salad that's normal <laughs> very true very true especially now i mean you may be more because you're in a hot and you're in a hot country but definitely no one in london right now is know. craving a salad <laughs> <laughs> no one wants a salad um no that's that's really that's really great advice and would you say after your menstrual cycle then your period your triggers for your ibs would be back to kind of how they were they wouldn't be as heightened as in that luteal phase how quickly yeah. does that last the luteal phase it's about it depends on the woman but around five to seven days so um yeah it should be back to normal it should be back to normal to be honest and um, during your actual period because your your hormone levels are at the lowest in the luteal phase so mm-hmm. um that's why i'm saying a lot of people's symptoms when they're actually on their period are down to potentially behavior rather than hormones and this is not nice to hear because i know a lot of people want to know like well what is my body doing to me but actually it's what we're doing to our body and uh, but in a good way that's we that means we can control it so you know make knowing that you're going to have these um you're going to have wanting different foods and just pre-planning so you're not in a situation where you just lose control when you're really hungry mm-hmm. i think is the best way forward yeah preparation is key isn't it then you always know that you've got something prepped rather than the stress exactly. moment of having to do it then and there yeah. And the other thing is, is it's normal to fall off the bandwagon. So I did have a client mm-hmm. the other day who said something to me and so many people say this, probably including myself. And they said, oh, I feel so guilty for eating this or eating that. It doesn't matter. You're not, you know, you're human. Sometimes, you know, I will have things like I'm really bad with garlic and onion. And sometimes I'll have a pizza gluten free because I'm, I'm celiac, but still it's got onion and garlic. I'm never be really bloated, but I don't care. And, you know, I'm in control of that. And that's mm-hmm. no, no one's died. Yeah, exactly. It's just food. Yeah, 
Exactly. And you know that trigger, you know that that's going to, you know, you're going to yeah. have maybe a few uncomfortable hours and it's not going to be great, but actually it's fine. Exactly. And you've prepared yourself for that. Exactly. And I think that's a really important thing. I think shame is something that's never discussed, but I think so many people feel it. And there's, you know, it's, it's, it's hard unless people discuss it and realize that actually, no, there's so much more to having an enjoyment of something and that should be celebrated is the enjoyment of the food around yeah. at the same time, which is so, so, so important. Um, and, you know, we've we've kind of started talking about the foods and, and I've picked out a few, but we've also mentioned, you know, actually it's not just about food, IBS. There's so much more that comes under it. I mean, nutrition, as you said, is, is, is one part of it. So sleep. Now... Yeah. I can I know that you've had a baby for the last year your sleep is going to be you're going to be very sleep deprived but how important is sleep and IBS it's it's really important really really important so to the point where I have clients who do you know nutrition really well and they do the movement really well but the sleep's off and they're just they're not you know the sensitivity is not good so what I, I you know it's I don't it's, it's almost like a lost kind of part in the medical world I feel sometimes because mm. when you look at like the doctors that cover various different elements and how no one seems to cover sleep you know that's not like a speciality I'm mm-hmm. like where does this lie um so sleep is something and again you know you see people who go to and I hate to generalize people so sorry for listening to this you think stop saying that person but you know <laughs> something like CrossFit where they're like eating really well or you know exercising really hardcore but the sleep is it's terrible you know, it's, it's just not optimized and you're not going to get anywhere with it. We know it's, you know, um, linked to inflammatory processes, mm-hmm. depression, um, loads of different things. So mm-hmm. if, you know, do go and read if anyone's interested the book, um, you probably read this, Sarah, with um, Matthew Walker, Why We Sleep. It's my, awesome. my favorite book. I did I try quote it. about him about a podcast and I got the best email response I ever had. Sorry, I am out the office for the next year. <laughs> ah, amazing. I really want to do that. <laughs> I thought, wow, he's optimizing sleep. <laughs> oh, yeah. But yeah, it's but, a fantastic book. If you and if you don't mind it being a little bit too science heavy for anybody who mm-hmm. isn't um, studied science, but yeah, it's it's fantastic. That's a really good recommendation. But if you do find, because I'm dyslexic, so it takes like eighty years to read any book anyway. So this is heavy for me. I'd say to you, try the audio book as well. That's pretty good. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And I was going to say also, you know, it hits your hunger hormones when you're sleep deprived. So gremlin, yeah. which I always call the gremlin, comes yeah. out. And uh, and that's why you can start cr- having lots of cravings because obviously when mm-hmm. you're tired, I mean, I don't know about you, but the first thing I reach for is something sugary to kind of give me a yeah. boost of energy. Um, and I think a lot of people then don't even realize, you know, that's completely out of their control because again, you know, the hunger hormones are telling them, no, have this, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. hungry, give me energy. Um, so there's so much that goes on with a lack of sleep. So exactly. again, and I'm going to reiterate this in every episode of my podcast, everybody is completely, completely individual, but roughly how much sleep do you advise people should be getting a night? I go on around eight hours, but it, mm-hmm. I know the recommendations around seven to nine hours. It really depends on the person. Mm. And I would say to you as well, it doesn't really matter if you're laying there, if your eyes closed for eight hours, you also need to get good quality sleep as well. So if you're someone that's waking up and you're getting eight hours a night sleep and you feel really good, you think, yeah, I've done really well, but you're tired all day, look at your quality. You know, are you waking up overnight? Because you need enough REM and non-REM cycles of sleep every night to really, you know, improve things. So look at, you know, what you're doing the night before. Um, what are you drinking in the afternoon? Is it coffee? Is it alcohol? 
I, is there things on your mind you know do invest in things like therapy I think there's a big taboo around therapy but I, I firmly believe that everyone with a brain needs to see a brain doctor that's the way I see it mm. if you can't go to sleep at night you know invest in, in in somebody that can help you do this um or I get my clients to agree to an hour sleep routine and that means that say your bedtime depending on when you're getting up is 10 I want you in bed at half nine you know, mm -hmm. and I have like even an app on my phone that actually blocks the whole phone. This is how extreme I got. Wow. And I can't, I can't use apps. It doesn't, I messages people on my behalf saying that I'm off the grid till 7 a.m. the next day and you sit That's and read. Amazing. Yeah, it's, it's needed because we're just on the go. Little things like even a hot shower before bed will relax your muscles. Yeah. Rather than having a shower in the morning or shower mm -hmm. in the morning if you want. That's up to you. It's nothing to do with mm -hmm. me. But in the evening, have a hot shower before you get to bed. Have that wind down time because if you're expecting your brain to go from a million miles an hour to hitting to going to bed, you're expecting way too much. Yeah, because it's robotic, isn't it? You can't yeah. just switch off. And I think, do you know what? I have something. So, I mean, I don't have something that closes down my phone. I probably should do, to be fair. But I use Flux, which I download, and that takes all of the blue light out of my phone. And also, mm -hmm. I'm really funny about bright lights. So around seven o'clock, I turn off a lot of lights, have really dim lights and just some candles on because again, that can help with yeah. your melatonin production. So there's exactly. so many tips and tricks with, with sleep and how important that is. Um, and I think you just, you mentioned something really, um, really important, which is about the quality of sleep. And someone who's a sleep talker can definitely empathize with that because sometimes I could be in bed for nine hours and I wake up and I'm exhausted. Bless <laughs> you. You've had done a full night's work. I've done a full night's <laughs> chattering um, and you can really see the effects of it when you do. So again, it is, it's that quality sleep, which is so, so critical. Um, meditation is something that I'd like to talk about because actually, although, um, you know, it's been not spoken about very, very long, it now there's been a lot of research actually on meditation and even hypnotherapy and things like that with IBS would you like to discuss any evidence around that for the listeners because I think people are now starting to to understand the importance of meditation actually it's quite beneficial for their health but also IBS yeah, yeah I mean it's, it's mindfulness in general in general being in general terms so any form of mindfulness is good and meditation is a form of that mm -hmm. so do not do what I did and I went I was like yeah I'm going to do my meditation everyone you know I always tell my clients this and they think it's funny because I'm really skeptical not the sort of person that would even do this like unless I've got data it's not happening and I was like I actually went to a Buddhist center in Manchester and I was and everyone was like yeah, I was getting cups of tea I was like oh this is great you know I wasn't sure if I was forming like a cult or I'm not sure what it is <laughs> um but then there was like, so now we're going to go into the prayer room and I've got the most active type a mind constantly on the go and I sat down and I was there for an hour and a half meditating so it was like proper intense really intense That's a yeah long time I think you're gonna say 10 minutes and you're an hour no, and a half no. And there wow. was, it was like proper, the, all the, all, if I keep saying proper, all the, all the traditional like chanting and all this kind of thing. And I think sometimes when we think of meditation, that's what we think of. And when I see that, I say to meditation, my clients, I can see them closing down on it. No, 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 no. That's not what I mean. So take a step back. All meditation is, is sitting mindfully for 10 minutes. That's all you need to do for 10 minutes a day. And apps like Calm or um, Headspace are fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, and they just talk you through it. And what I say to people is, if you need meditation, you will find it very difficult. And by that, what I mean is people with the busiest minds, you're going to sit there and spend 10 minutes and you'll be really annoyed at the end because you'll think, what a waste of 10 minutes. And you'll spend the entire 10 minutes thinking about different things because it's going to take your brain time to rethink in a different way. Just like the first time you went to the gym, you picked up a weight, you weren't sure how to do it. 
um, and it was painful afterwards and it was awkward. That's You're trying to train your brain in a way that is never thought before. But from someone, me, that is the sort of person that hates this kind of thing, in bracket, you know, this kind of, I get wishy-washy things that I used to think it was, there's actual research for it. And honestly, if you can nail this down and make yourself do it for 10 days in a row, then it is, it's almost life-changing, you know, the way you're able to then process thoughts and relax. It's a really good tool to do. And it's heavily linked with the reduction of symptoms and IBS, isn't it? As exactly. Well, if you're meditating, because yeah. it's reducing your stress levels and stress, as we know, is yeah. highly linked to IBS. Yeah, absolutely. It's about being mindful as well, you know, and sort of not mindful, but present, because if you're thinking too much in the future, they say that this is related to more anxiety and they're too much in the past, it's more related to the depression, both of which are linked to IBS. If you can use that 10 minutes just to think about the current, that's definitely going to help you. Yeah. And how, and what's your thoughts around um, IBS and mindful eating? I think that's another really key point. Yeah, so there are obviously things like intuitive eating. That's not something I'm trained in. However, I do have other people who contribute to some of the work I do with some of the clients. And definitely, I think this is an element and something we've forgotten. So you think traditional family, you know, you're eating at the table. You don't have music blare and TV. You're not on your phone. Whereas I think our generation now, we're just constant. You know, there's times I have to, I'm on the computer and I've got Netflix on and my phone and then I've got I you know so many things at once mm-hmm. um, and you're you're missing the cues for when you're actually hungry when you're mm-hmm. full um all these different things so often you know people can go too long actually without eating a meal because they just don't realize they're hungry and actually then overeating at other times and that then it might mean your portions are just are too big and that's why you get problems so definitely I think mindful eating is is really important yeah and it also you know it gives you that time as you said it can be part of your mindfulness practice, you know, just to sit down and actually enjoy that food is really important. I think, as you said, the grab and go culture is definitely our generation. Meal times aren't as big today as they probably were in our parents' generation. No. So going through, we went through a few trigger foods. We went through our hormones. We went through um, mindfulness and sleep. You know, what is the IBS toolkit for people that are listening, you know, is there anything else in there? I'd probably say movement is one of them as well. But people, you know, if they are having a flare up of their IBS or they are generally worried, you know, what would be your IBS toolkit for them? My IBS toolkit would be number one, I'd say to just keep a diary because if you if you don't know why your symptoms are happening or when they're happening, how are you going to tackle them? So many people jump this part and they go into what supplement can I take? What diet can I do? Well, we don't know. Let's take a step back yet first. And we need to find out what your actual IBS is and, you know, what, what's occurring. And what you can then start to see is, is it a fiber issue? Are you really stressed? You know, and then you can form, I'd say, very specific SMART goals. So looking at what area it is that's causing the issue. Just pick one area at a time. So don't try to do everything because you're just going to get overwhelmed. So look at if it's stress, look at the mindfulness we talked about. Look, you know, just download the app and commit to it. If it's a nutrition element, you really need a dietitian, you know, to be guiding you through that low FODMAP diet. Um, is it movement? You know, are you someone, especially during lockdown, where we're not necessarily at work, are you just not moving the whole week? And you're thinking, why is my IBS worse during lockdown? It's different. If you can just spend one week, don't change anything. I know this is frustrating because you want to take action, but do write everything in this diary, your mood, your sleeping patterns, um, your food, everything, and start to be realistic. Look at what you think is the main factor um, and then you can target it going forward is what I'd say. And in terms of toolkit, a dietitian is going to be, the, is probably my, and you can call me biased, but, you know, we're the, we're the professionals here that are trained to deal with this. 
mm-hmm. um, and we will look for these other elements. Um, the other thing is looking at maybe potentially psychologist, depending on you know where your levels are at, and only you can know that and you know see where see what you need to kind of invest in time or money wise going forward. But they're the two professionals I'd probably recommend going forward. Fantastic. And lastly, because I know that we're just nearly out of time, is resources. So for anybody who has really enjoyed this episode and wants to learn more, um, I would recommend there's a really good FODMAP app by Monash University just to get your head Mm -hmm. around things if you want to have a little read further. And obviously the NHS and the British Dietetic Association. But is there any other resources that you would recommend? Yeah, so the IBS network is fantastic. They've got lots of articles. So I'm actually um, an advisor for the IBS network as a charity in the UK. Um, so you can get really good articles in there. They're all checked by registered dietitians or doctors or other specialists in this area. Um, you can have a little look. I actually run a free webinar for anyone that wants to find out, you know, especially if you feel at this stage, you feel like you've tried everything. It covers exactly why it hasn't worked. And you can sign up to that via my Instagram. So that's absolutely free. Um, and then... The um, British Dietetic Association has various fact sheets on this. Um, and lastly, there is another app um, by King's College in London. Um, they actually have an app called FODMAP Maestro. So it's particularly good for your listeners in the UK because it actually has British British brands on it, whereas some of the Monash ones are great for general food, but some of the branded stuff is more Australian-based. Fantastic. And so because obviously, you know, you mentioned your webinar as well, where can people find you? What's your website? What's your Instagram? Yeah, so the website is the foodtreatmentclinic.com mm-hmm. and my Instagram is at the dot IBS dietitian. Um, and you can get loads of info on there as well. And it's all been obviously checked and made by me. So you can trust it. Fantastic. That's what we want. That's what we want our listeners to be directed to evidence-based sources. Kristen, thank you so much for being on Live Well, Be Well. And I always like to finish the, always like to finish with asking the last question, what does Live Well, Be Well mean to you? Oh, that's a hard question. (laughs) (laughs) I think Live Well, Be Well for me is living well in the present because I feel like so many people think about tomorrow or we need to get this done for next week or we need to earn this certain money or whatever. And we, we, we kind of make so much emphasis on the future and we forget the importance of the present and what can make the difference to us in the present. So that might sound very wishy-washy, but that's probably a big thing that I've learned, especially recently with the pandemic. I think that's very valuable advice is focusing on the present and very much linked to all of the advice that you gave today. So thank you, Kristen, for coming on and hope to see you soon thank you so much for having me thank you that was amazing thank thank you to Kirsten for being on live well be well that was a really informative conversation all around IBS and please do head to the resources we both mentioned in the podcast to gain more information and do listen back onto season two navigating IBS with the FODMAP diet with lead dietitian Dr Jane Murr who is the head um, at Monash University There's much more you can find. And until next week, I hope you all live well and be well.
Before you go, I have something new to tell you about. There's brand new bonus content waiting for you with every new guest I speak to. These are exclusively for my inner circle of Apple subscribers. To listen now, head to the Live Well, Be Well show page on Apple Podcasts, where you can activate your free trial and you can enjoy the podcast without adverts.